Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleh Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, and this is Fast Politics, where we discuss the top political headlines with some of today's best minds. And George Santos's campaign has refunded more money than it's raised. LOL. By the way, would like to add that George Santos tweeted yesterday that Kellyanne was right about me. Oh, I bet she was. And I would like to say rent-free in Kellyanne Conway's head. That's where I live. We have a star-studded show for you today. Congresswoman Mikey Sherrill updates us on the chaos in the House as the GOP props up Congressman Jim Jordan. Then we'll talk to The Atlantic's Ann Applebaum about the rare good news coming out of Poland's recent election. But first, we have the host of the new podcast, Contempt of Court, The Nation's Ellie Mastal. Welcome back to Fast Politics, Ellie. Hey, how are you? I am very excited to have you here because I'm a super fan. And also because we have these conversations and sometimes I think about them months and months later, which is usually like I have a brain like a sib. So and usually everything just goes right in and out. But for you, for some reason, the last time we talked, you told me so much stuff that sort of like permeated and was kind of going around my brain for months and months. Yeah, it's kind of, you ever read the, the Greek myth of uh, Cassandra, right? Yes. <laughs> you feel you're a Cassandra? Yeah, there, there's a bit. Like, I feel like Apollo sexually assaulted <laughs> me, and now I am cursed to know exactly what the Supreme Court's going to do but has some difficulty getting, you know, especially the Democrats in Congress and running for office to realize just how terribly screwed we are <laughs> when it comes to the six conservatives currently ruling the rest of the country. There are new cases this season, this season two of the real Supreme Court justices of the Trump administration. I feel like the shit they did last season was like almost like now they're just taking it a little further. Well, I, the way that I would put it is this. The Supreme Court over the past two years has completed its generational goals, right? Yes. They wanted to end reproductive rights and send women back to second class status. They've done that. They've wanted to end affirmative action and make colleges and universities safe for mediocre white children. They've done that. Yes, Dianu, as my people say. So now we're in the kind of spiking the football portion of the thing where they're not doing things 
that they have spent a generation doing, you know, saying that they were going to do. Now they're on their stretch goals. Extra credit. So if you're a domestic abuser and want to have a weapon, this Supreme Court is for you. This is the time for you. One of the biggest cases that they will hear later, uh, I believe it's scheduled for November now, it's called US v. Rahimi. That is a case where a person who was under a restraining order. Rahini, not a good guy, not a good husband. And had, you know, not only a restraining order for abusing his ex-girlfriend, but was involved in multiple shootings over the course of his uh, criminal career, including, I think, most hilariously and frighteningly, shooting his gun into the air at a Whataburger yes. when his credit card was declined. This is a person you should give more weapons to. Right. So they took his guns away, which just makes sense. But he said, no, 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 no. Taking my guns away just because I have a domestic violence restraining order is a violation of my Second Amendment rights. And the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals said, yes, yes, it is. And there was a concurrence from a judge named James Ho, who was my pick for probably the worst possible person running to replace Clarence Thomas, where he wrote a concurrence that was basically like, yeah, restraining orders, that's women, they're shrews. And they just <laughs> use restraining orders to, you know, as a legal, he said, as a, as a tactical advantage over spurned lovers. Is this originalism? This is the winning argument, Molly. Like, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, I'm, I'm laughing because if you don't, you just cry. You cry. Yeah, right? yeah. I just want you to explain to our listeners the thing that they're doing now, which is this idea that if the founders did not conceive of it, it is not real. Yeah. So the current Supreme Court precedent on guns comes from Bruin v. New York State Rifle and Pistol Association, which Clarence Thomas decided, you know, right after Dobbs. And that says that if you have a gun regulation, it must be sourced in a gun regulation that existed at the time of the founding in 1787. Right. Right. We're right. <laughs> well, seventeen eighty seven when women were property right. and right. So yes. if General George Washington <laughs> I'm not making that up. If General yes. George Washington and his merry band didn't come up with the gun regulation, you can't have it. If Lynn Manuel Miranda did not rap about it as Alexander <laughs> Hamilton, <laughs> you cannot have a gun regulation. It is ridiculous, right? To say just as many people will point out. The simple march of technology suggests that um, we might need different gun regulations than what we needed in 1787, where it took, nah. you know, 98 seconds to reload <laughs> your single shot musket. Again, I want to point out we are laughing because it keeps us from crying, because this is absolute insanity. And that's where we are. And, you know, quite frankly, if we're if, if that's the standard, well, you know what? I'm going to tell you something. They were not taking away guns from domestic abusers in 1787. Right, because domestic abuse was kind of just marriage. Because domestic abuse was not a crime in 1787. Remember, I, I, I said this before, but let's remember, marital rape did not become a crime in all 50 states until the 70s. Yeah. No, it is unfucking believable And this Supreme Court is ready. Look, I actually think, still think there's a chance that the Supreme Court overturns the Fifth Circuit on Rahimi. I don't think Rahimi is a completely lost cause yet for two reasons. One, the precedent that you can take guns away from domestic abusers is, is very longstanding, right? Yeah. So Roberts doesn't like overturning longstanding precedents. Except when it comes unless to abortion. we're talking about a woman's hoo-ha, in which case. Right. And this is open season. Then it's open season, right? So that's number one. Number two, remember, a domestic violence uh, restraining order is a legal adjudication. It's not a mere allegation. It's not the same as an indictment or a charge. The law is not, you've been indicted so you can't have a gun. You've had a due process, right? And so if they're saying that after a, a legal adjudication, you cannot have a fundamental right taken away, well... You know what they like to do? They like to take fundamental rights away when they are voting rights for people who have had legal adjudication against them. Yes. So let's talk about this. This is like, I feel like Republicans' new favorite thing is taking away. It's not their new. It's their favorite. It's a time-honored Republican tradition of taking away the voting rights of people who probably aren't going to vote for you. 
Right. Because the only way that they can win, Republicans have long understood they can't win in a free and fair election. Like if everybody who wants to vote does vote and has their vote counted, Republicans can't win. They're a minoritarian, sectarian, regional party at this point. They don't have massive popular appeal and they know that. And so one of their key electoral strategies is to depress and make it difficult for people who don't like them to vote against them. So that's kind of a long-standing thing with the Republican Party. What's kind of new at the Supreme Court or new-ish at the Supreme Court is there that the Supreme Court is 100% all in on it and is doing things to make it harder for basically puts foot on the gas and allowed Republicans to gerrymander away minority voting power in any state that is controlled by Republicans. So we've already had an oral argument in a case brought by the South Carolina chapter of the NAACP about South Carolina's District 1. Now, according to the federal district court, South Carolina's District 1 is an unconstitutional racial gerrymander. They drew the district right through the city of Charleston. And they basically took all the black people that should have been in District 1, which right now is Nancy Mace's district. Ah, the best. You'll remember her from wearing a skin-tight T-shirt with an A on it for adulterer when she was parading through Congress. Yeah, I only remember her as the person who could not get through the spark notes on (laughs) Nathaniel Hawk's author and scarlet letter, right? She tapped out. After the the first uh, paragraph, right? That's right. That's District 1 in South Carolina. District 6, which is the other district that has part of Charleston, is Jim Clyburn's district, yeah, which is already majority-minority. And so what the Republicans did is basically take all the remaining Black people that lived in District 1 and shoved them into Clyburn's district, creating a kind of super Black district for Clyburn and creating a very safe white district for Nancy Mace. Right. Well, she needs it, man, because she's not great. They said they were not doing this because of the race of the voters they were moving. They said they were doing a partisan gerrymander. They were only trying to move Democrats out of Nancy Mace's district, not black people. That's an important legal distinction, because in 2019, John Roberts, with the help of his conservative buddies, said that you can politically gerrymander to your heart's content and the federal courts can't stop you. He called political gerrymanders non-justiciable by the Supreme Court, which basically oh, yeah. means states do whatever you want. But he said that in the 2019, a case is called Rucho v. Common Cause, he said that racial gerrymanders were still totally bad. Well, obviously, and I said this in real time and functionally every single day since, functionally, that makes no sense because all that's going to happen is that the people who are being racist are going to say, no, 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 we were just being political. Right. You know, something about racists that I've learned in my travels is that they don't often say, hey, I'm doing this because I hate the black peoples. <laughs> Except sometimes in MAGA world, but largely no, I agree. Trump yes. does it. That's why they love them. But the <laughs> right, rest of them, exactly. right, they don't write on their maps, I'm doing this to get black people out of my town. Right. Except they did in Alabama. Which is why they lost, by the way. Right. Exactly. But here in South Carolina, they just said, oh, no, no, we're just doing this politically. The district courts factually said that that was just wrong. One of the ways that we know they were doing it racially, not politically, is that they left white Democrats in Nancy Mace's district. Right. Right. They didn't move them out. They moved out black Democrats. And so, yeah. But the Supreme Court, we had oral arguments on that two weeks ago. It feels like a lifetime ago, but two weeks ago, I listened to them and it was just, there's no way that South Carolina NAACP is going to win this case. John Roberts was basically like, how can we know racism even exists? He didn't say that we're racist. How can we call them racist? Again, laughing to keep from right? crying, not laughing because any of this is funny. And alleged attempted rapist Brett Kavanaugh, he invoked his black friend, Jim Clyburn. <laughs> because Clyburn, well, I mean, and you can kind of, yeah, I can criticize Clyburn for this a bit, but like I also can kind of understand it. You right. just told, Jim Clyburn was told, you're going to, your district is going to be unlosable right. by a black person. And Clyburn was like, yes, please. Yeah. So Clyburn, you know, tacitly signed off on the racist map that South Carolina used. And so then at oral arguments, Brett Kavanaugh was basically like, well, Jim Clyburn didn't think it was racist. Right. And he's my best friend. And he's my best buddy. Oh, it's just it's a it's a bad scene. And what it's going to mean is that, as I predicted in 2019 after Rucho, any racial gerrymander can just be called a political gerrymander. And these idiots on the Supreme Court will fall for it. 
Yeah. So let me ask you. Right. And they're idiots. They're useful idiots. Right. They're not really they want to fall for it. Idiots is giving is being too kind right. to them. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> The last time you were on this podcast, and now I remember something you said, which, by the way, we do 18,000 interviews a day. So the fact that I remembered something you said is I think it's the first time this has ever happened. But you said to me, Amy Coney Barrett is actually really smart. Yep. And I remember thinking to myself, really? You said you hear her oral arguments and you hear this is a person who is very smart working things out. Yep. So here's my question for you. Yesterday in Colorado, she said there needs to be an ethics code. We're all in on an ethics code. And then she declined to say why they hadn't had an ethics code before that. So she's playing three dimensional chess here, right? She understands. As I do believe John Roberts does, if you gave him truth zero, that the ethics concern are the only things that can interrupt their project, right? Because like I said, they're in the process of spiking the football. Right. And the only thing that's going to decrease their ability to spike the football is if people feel like the Supreme Court is corrupt, which it is. <laughs> right. It's one of those things like, if you're winning, you don't need to commit a foul. You're winning, right? It's only if you start fouling the other teams and giving getting penalties and giving them free opportunities to score that you have any danger of losing. And that is what Coney Barrett is trying to say. She's all in on ethics because, first of all, she's probably not nearly as corrupt as her colleagues. Right. I mean, the bar is pretty fucking low. But, yeah, she's, she hasn't been zipping along on somebody else's jet. Nobody's buying her RV, right? So, <laughs> so there's probably that. But there's also the idea that, like, it's only through corruption can they lose their generational majority right. to do right. whatever they want. And the thing about the ethics and ethics reform that is led by the Supreme Court is going to be necessarily a lot easier, a lot more forgiving than an ethics reform led by kind of an angry Congress in 2025 if things don't go Republicans way in the next election. Right. And again, this is what I'm saying. She's a smart lady. It's wise to get out ahead of this. In fairness, Elena Kagan, who was actually the only justice I believe is incorruptible. So I've got like I got Kagan stories. I had her for, for law school and right. she was the dean of my law school uh, eventually the year that I graduated. So one of my stories is she used to be a smoker. I don't think she is anymore. Good. We need her healthy. <laughs> I was a smoker. So I was in a, a, a store buying cigarettes and she was behind me and I offered to buy her a pack of cigarettes. And she looks at me and she goes, Mr. Listall, would you offer any person in this store a free pack of cigarettes? Is that sure? There are people who would like to have a free pack. Or are you only offering me a pack of cigarettes because I'm your law school dean? Mm, and the answer is yes. I think you have to examine your conscience as to why you would do that. And I was like, yo. <laughs> <laughs> right. I don't think Clarence Thomas is having that conversation. Okay. I <laughs> do, are you just flying me on your jet to talk to your donors because I'm a Supreme Court justice with seemingly unlimited power? Right. I was educated that day. <laughs> Elena Kagan famously will not accept free locks on her bagel. Yeah. Okay. So she yeah. is uncorruptible and she has also been out there in favor of ethics reform. Um, we know why it's not happening. It's because Clarence Thomas makes too much money off of it. And he's not the only one. He's the most kind of greedy and least tactful one, right? But Gorsuch is making money off of land deals. Alito is getting flown all around the country. Roberts, you know, we say that he, maybe you don't give the money directly to him, but Roberts's wife is a big time legal recruiter. All she yes. does is move lawyers from one firm to another makes millions of dollars doing that. And, you know, one might ask, I wonder if you would be as successful of that if your husband wasn't on the Supreme Court. If you're a legal recruiter, you come to my firm, he's like, I've got three lawyers that you should totally hire. And my practice involves, you know, appellate law in front of the Supreme Court. I'm going to listen to you, John Roberts's wife, right? So most of them have dirty hands. And then there's the question of like, what's the actual punishment going to because you can't have ethics reforms without ethical consequences, right? Right. What's the punishment? First of all, who gets to decide that ethics have been violated? And once there is, what's the, what's the punishment for judges 
who have violated ethical guidelines or refuse to recuse themselves from cases. Right now, it is up to each individual justice to consult their own conscience about whether or not they should sit for a case. (laughs) Any real ethics reform changes that. That's where the fight is, right? Because like, who gets to tell Clarence, no, you can't sit on this case is the ballgame. That's right. That's right. I have a solution, by the way. I think it should be an independent panel of retired judges. I think that that's the simplest, easiest, and most fair solution. You get a three-judge retired panel. You can do a retired panel of former Supreme Court justices, right? There are many of them still alive. David Souter, Anthony Kennedy. Oh, that's an amazing idea. David Souter, Anthony Kennedy, and Stephen Breyer, all still alive. Put them on a panel. Have them decide who has to recuse. Boom. Solved. Ellie, I hope you will come back. <laughs> Absolutely will. <laughs> the world isn't completely on fire. Right. <laughs> yes. It's so crazy. We still have things like radio programs. Then yes, I will have to be. <laughs> if you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry though, he's fully recovered. Good one, Dad. (sighs) Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of dough. Well, the truth is, Dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Congresswoman Mikey Shell represents New Jersey's 11th congressional district. Welcome back to Fast Politics. Congresswoman, thanks for having me back. You're coming off these votes. What is happening with your branch of government? Wow, it might be easier <laughs> to track what's not happening in my branch of government. I turned to back in January when we were having vote after vote after vote to get a new Speaker of the House. And it was sort of a historic moment. And I turned to a friend of mine on the floor and I said, you know, just once I'd like to start a Congress, not in a historic moment. Because as you recall, my first session of Congress, we were facing the longest government shutdown our nation had ever faced. Trump was in office. It was the first federal election after he had taken office. And so that was really an historic moment. And then sadly, the next time I got sworn in several days later uh, was January 6th. It was horrible. So that was a historic moment. And then we had the Speaker McCarthy vote, a historic moment. And she, my friend turned to me and said, I said, you know, I'd like to not be in a historic moment. She looked at me with this very skeptical look and she goes, really? And I said, no, not really. I mean, that's why I'm here, <laughs> right? We are in the right. transformative times. I believe a lot is on the line for our country, including at times the democracy itself. And so I'm really proud to be here and, and doing this kind of work. It is really really troubling as you try to find the best way forward for the country. And I can tell you uh, with utmost confidence that Jim Jordan is not the best path forward for this country. I feel like that's the understatement of the year for the people who are like keeping track at home and who for whom this is not their entire lives. Um, Jim Jordan decided that he was going to be the nominee despite having less votes than Steve Scalise. Right. So my sense is that there are people within the Republican conference who are incredibly worried about the institution of Congress, not worried right. enough to actually, you know, work with Democrats at this point and get a new speaker elected. But right. nevertheless, certainly not. You know, right. I think that there were people that were supporting Scalise who just really looked at the numbers and, and said, look, we're, we're not going to make this happen. I think Jordan was putting out that he he had more votes than he did. And, and there were 20 votes on the floor after the last vote that would not support him. I believe he can only lose four. You know, it's hard to see him closing that gap. I'm not saying impossible. I, I often complain that that many of my colleagues seem to end up doing what I would suggest is the wrong thing for the country uh, after suggesting they wouldn't. So we don't know. But at this point, it, it, it doesn't look like he'll get that. So some of the things we're contemplating is whether or not it makes sense to empower Speaker Pro Tem McHenry getting him more power. And that could happen, right? Yeah. But it is it is really interesting because, you know, a lot of people were shocked at the 20 people who didn't support him. I was shocked at the over 200 who did support him or the almost 200 who did support him. He has this history. I mean, even as far back as when he was a wrestling coach, kind of turning a blind eye to what kids on his team said were reports that they had reported to him of sexual assault and then not passing any legislation in the 17 years he's been in Congress, which oddly got some applause on the floor of the House from his colleagues, which I didn't understand. <laughs> it just kind of shows you the chaos and the almost pride in not governing from right. some quarters of the, you know, kind of the extreme members of that conference. But I guess we should be somewhat happy that he has not been effective because he's also the chief author of the National Abortion Bill with no exceptions. Right. He's started numerous investigations that continue to lead to dead ends. So he's just wasting right. a lot of taxpayer dollars, which, you know, of all people, he should not be because he won't <laughs> vote to fund the government, tries to and really, you know, not past the budget. So with all this as his record, it's hard to see that anything good would come from having him as the speaker. Again, I, I would say another understatement, I'm sure. So let me ask you about this. The world is on fire, right? We have mega crisis in the Middle East. We have mega crisis in Ukraine with Russia. I mean, it's just really perilous moment. Tommy Tuberville is still holding up the appointments. Yeah, it's shocking. It really is that he is now really imperiling 
some of what's going on in what we call CENTCOM, which is the Middle East area of operations, as we have seen those horrible attacks and we're attempting to support Israel in the region and get humanitarian aid into Gaza. We have military members who are now going to be statutorily required to leave in that area. And these are complicated issues that we're facing. We know that he's held up, I think, by the end of the year, over two thirds of our flag officers, which are admirals and generals, will be statutorily required to leave their posts. And, you know, again, I think this is just tied to the chaos that you see on the far right. And the fact that their constituencies do not hold them accountable, I think, is is the toughest pill to swallow. Because, you know, what I often say is it's not the fact that Marjorie Taylor Greene is in Congress. It's the fact that in a district of 750,000 people, she's the person that they want representing them in Congress. That's what kills you right. about the whole thing, right. is that there are people that are so cynical that that's the representation that they want. Let's talk about the sort of possibilities here. They're going to be, they, I think they recess. They'll vote more. They'll just keep voting until people completely run out of ideas. I mean, where does this go? I've heard we're going to go back and vote again in a little over an hour, which is a little bit surprising. I, again, I, I have a hard time believing that in this short period of time, he's moved the numbers. But maybe, it, you know, here's what's different. Sometimes you move numbers on speaker votes because people want People hold out because they want to be named to a powerful committee or they want some agreement on legislation that is very important to them. And so they negotiate. I am not getting a sense that some of the holdouts are holding out because they want anything from Jordan. I'm getting a sense that they're holding out because they specifically do not want Jordan to be the Speaker of the House. And that's different. So it's hard for me to see him moving the numbers very much, but we're going to go back and try again in a about an hour. And then I'm not sure. I mean, I have heard from a Republican colleague that they need to hit rock bottom before they move forward. (laughs) This is like the craziest thing. They need to hit rock bottom. It's like your junkie cousin. Why don't we think we're there? You know, like what what is what is it about this situation that doesn't scream rock bottom? You can't get Jim Jordan elected to the speakership. That could be in many ways rock bottom right there. Right. You know, I just I remember when I was in the Navy, there used to be these performance reviews and and sometimes people would put snarky things in in performance reviews. And and one of them was this person. It doesn't seem to have a real grasp of the the matter has hit rock bottom and continues to dig. And that's sort of, I keep thinking, we've hit rock bottom, but we continue to dig. Like, what, what, is, what is the plan here? So I do think, though, that, that maybe it's time to really consider empowering McHenry so that we can just continue to run the government until the Republicans have a better path forward. Because I really don't think that barring working with Democrats, and I'm not just saying this as a Democrat, I, I don't think any Republican can get the votes that they need right. to become speaker in the Republican conference, which is, you know, a remarkable thing to say. By the way, I love Republicans blaming Democrats for this. That came out of nowhere, right? <laughs> Kevin McCarthy. And it wasn't Republicans only. It was some Democrats telling me about this. But suddenly McCarthy goes from being one of the worst speakers the House has ever known. You know, I mean, his appeasement strategy got weirder and weirder because he kept giving up governance to trying to appease the Freedom Caucus. And then he finally says you can start an impeachment inquiry, but he got nothing for it. That's when I knew we were at the beginning of the end. I'm like, well, if you're going to appease somebody, you, you know, I thought he was saying you could do that and you then have to vote to fund the government or vote for a CR or something. But he just sort of gave that away and didn't ask anything in return. And I thought, you know, now we have somebody who's trying to be worse, who's trying to like out Freedom Caucus, the Freedom Caucus. So things were going in a really, really bad direction. I know his conference was furious with him, moderates and everyone. They, They thought he was really, I mean, obviously. And then Democrats were furious with him. He, you know, less than a week after, he made a deal with the president of the United States. He then abandoned the deal and didn't follow. Um, so he was sort of at an all time low. And I, I said to a friend of mine, I said, wow, we must just really love an underdog because the minute that guy's out, suddenly everyone kind of reviews it and decides he should be speaker and Democrats should make him speaker. It was a really weird twist. And I, I've said to some people and a lot of the people that were most 
upset by this were members of Republican moderates. A lot of them were in the Problem Solvers Caucus. And, you know, they were furious. And I said to a friend of mine, I said, you know, they have so convinced themselves that somehow by doing every single thing their far right extremist base tells them to do and just by doing that and just staying in their seats, that somehow they're doing the Lord's work and that they're the heroes in this narrative. And somehow we Democrats should now do that, too. We should all just do whatever the Republican base needs us to do so we can stay in our seats because and this is what I hear all the time, because if I wasn't here, someone worse would be. (laughs) I'm at the point where I'm like, if you are voting to not fund government, if you are voting to, you know, have a nationwide abortion ban, if you are voting, not only if you are not voting on gun safety measures, but if you are voting to make guns more dangerous with pistol braces, for example, then why is that not the same as how the Freedom Caucus is voting? It is. You know, that's no better. You're not making a difference. You're not moving this country in a good direction. And you're certainly not moving the Republican Party in a good direction. And we need the Republican Party to reform itself. We are a two-party system and we can't have one party be the party that's trying to take down the government of the United States of America. I mean, that is the fundamental thing is like when people were like, a Jim Jordan speakership will be so much worse. Part of me was like, really? Because Kevin McCarthy held impeachment hearings. He had a CR that cut the government by 30 percent. I mean, these moderates are not really very moderate. I think it's interesting because when people ask me who would Democrats support, there's a lot of members I think of the Republican conference that Democrats would be willing to work with. And these aren't moderates. The bar has gotten so low. They're just people that I think a lot of us would term reasonable human beings, people that want to keep government open, people that want to support our allies across the world. It's really fascinating because in other times you would think that if Democrats were in any way going to you know, be helpful here, they would ask for the world, right? Pro-choice legislation and gun safety legislation, assault weapons ban and, you know, different priorities that we have that we feel passionately about. And yet at this point, all we're trying to do is find a pathway towards keeping the government open and getting some really key bipartisan, by the way. I mean, these are things that the Senate, you know, with almost with a very slim, slimmer majority. I mean, the Senate passes on a routine basis, even though they have the filibuster. So we're not asking for anything that's not hugely bipartisan. We're just trying to get government to work. And I think that's a really important thing. And that's why, you know, when somebody called me to talk to me about Scalise, who I certainly not my first choice, but said, the reason I'm having this conversation with you is because I really care about the House of Representatives. I really care about this country and we've got to find a path forward here. And right now, you know, there just aren't serious people in the Republican conference working to that end. And I hope they will soon because the country needs it. Talk to me about child care because you're working on child care. And this is a crisis for all of us who have children, let me say, though my children are too old for that now. But you probably remember what a debacle it was. Yes, it's a disaster. It's so hard. It was a disaster. And even if your children are older, I've got some really bad news for you. If you can believe it, it's worse now. So (laughs) I remember with horror and all kinds of agita and stomach aches and this when I think about trying to get childcare for my oldest, my daughter, who is now 18, and the struggles I had with my other children, as you know, I kept trying to find quality and affordable childcare. And there were times when I was paying more than my paycheck to have my kids in childcare, which is crazy and doesn't make short-term economic sense, which is why we see so many parents, often women, dropping out of the workforce, but it doesn't make long-term economic sense. And so making sure that, you know, people have access to good child care is critically important for their economic well-being, for their children's economic well-being, for their future, for their retirement. But it's also really important for the economy, which is why certainly the New Jersey Chamber of Commerce has talked to me about this. But I think there's, you know, in Kentucky, I was reading about a group of businessmen coming to the state to say, you really, you know, now that we've gone over this child care cliff, you've really got to support investment in child care. I mean, we have, yeah. you know, we have workforce issues. And if we don't figure out child care, we will continue to have them. And it's it's holding back the economy right now. 
Oh, yeah. No, for sure. And also we have labor issues, but no one ever will fix immigration. It's interesting because that is certainly a huge concern right now is border security. I I hear that from my colleagues across the aisle all the time. And as we address that, we have to have comprehensive immigration reform. I get asked all the time about immigration and what's the solution. And the striking thing is, I could have told you the solution five years ago when I started running for Congress. It is the same solution I have today, which is very rare, right? Normally the economy changes, the facts on the ground change. I am telling you, we need security at the border. We need a pathway to citizenship for people who are here, for TPS, for DACA. We need to address some of the foundational reasons for immigration, which in some parts, like in the Northern Triangle area, can be international criminal syndicates. I think we're seeing shifts across the world now that are going to also cause huge immigration trends that we have to address. But but this is not news. And I'm telling you, I hear about the problems in our immigration system. I told you I was on the, the Committee for Strategic Competition with Chinese Communist Party. So we talked to some really high-end CEOs in technology who are lamenting our problems with high-skilled labor. Right. I can also tell you that the Republicans wanted to pass a huge anti-immigration bill and we're having you know, just huge problems with it because their rural communities were concerned about immigration and get problems people to work. And I mean, people to work there. It's so crazy. It's the gamut. It is up and down the economic spectrum and it is harming our economy. And I would suggest, too, it's, it's just contrary to the values of this country, the way we treat people involved in this system. And it's also just like counter to capitalism, right? They just want to punish people. You need people to do the jobs. You have this population that is not growing. And I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. And yet instead of having a thoughtful approach to this, where we can determine the type of immigration that we need, how to have an orderly processing system, how to have people apply for legal immigration, instead... We now have a a severely broken system where we have people arriving and flooding different towns and areas that have no ability to handle this. So, you know, this is across the board. We need more people involved in how to process people through. We need to determine with asylum seekers how to best handle that. Because, again, this is, you know, the reason we have these asylum laws is in large part because we failed people fleeing the Holocaust during World War II yeah. and, you know, Jewish people fleeing the Nazis. So this is a huge issue that we've got to solve. It's a moral issue. It's an economic issue. And the way we are avoiding solving it now, because it's a politically difficult issue for many members, is really leading to worse and worse outcomes. Thank you, Congresswoman. Well, thank you. Anne Applebaum is a writer for The Atlantic and author of Twilight of Democracy. Welcome back to Fast Politics, Anne Applebaum. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to have you because this is a period in American life where everything is just so incredibly depressing and bleak. And you have a tiny sliver of hope. No pressure. Yes. And I I write a lot about the bleakness. So um, I I, I know what you're talking about. But Part of my life is spent in Poland. I've lived here on and off for 30 years, as well as living in America and being an American. My husband is Polish. He's a politician. He was in the former Polish government. And we have just had an election here, which was an emphatic rejection of an autocratic, populist, nationalist, far-right political party. And it's really good news. Many of us were convinced that it wasn't possible that they had captured the state to such an extent. They controlled the judiciary. They controlled a lot of the media. They controlled the civil service. They controlled, you know, so many aspects of life that, you know, we weren't sure whether a free election was still possible. And it turned out that it was, that there was enough still left in the of, of democracy in the system and of you know the people counting the votes were carefully monitored by a big civil society project and so on. 
And we had a really big turnout. Um, it was 74% in the whole nation, which is very high for Poland. That seems crazy high for anywhere. It's crazy high. And actually in the city of Warsaw, it was 84%. And I have a friend who voted in one district in one particular Warsaw neighborhood. And at his polling station, the turnout was 91%. And that tells you how mad people were and how much they wanted the government out and how worried they were that if they didn't get them out, that Poland would be an autocracy and there would be no more free elections. And that was really what was on the ballot here. You know, they that was this was at the center of the conversation. There are other issues here, too. There were a lot of women's rights issues that we have a horrifically strict abortion law here that's resulted in the deaths of several young women. And so that was, of course, part of the conversation, too. But it was also, can we take back the country? Can we have, you know, normal institutions again? You know, can we avoid this process of state capture? And it turned out that we could. I mean, there's actually still a long way to go. And we haven't had the change of government yet. And the president who's from the or former far right ruling party may try and block things. But um, but this is a parliamentary system. And hopefully sooner rather than later, we will get a government. But we have a clear majority for the three democratic opposition parties, which all want to return Poland to democracy. And so that's good news. Could you sort of talk us through what the landscape is there? And also, can you talk about your husband's experience a little bit just because it shows what a sort of authoritarian bent and how insidious the far right was? So there are weird parallels between Poland and the U.S. that for a long time I thought were just in my head. And then when I, I, I wrote a book that was partly about this and I realized that many of the patterns were the same. The Polish right was a kind of anti-communist, you know, sort of vaguely Thatcherite, Reaganite right, you know, once upon right. a time. Then it essentially split and part of it went further to the right, became very extremist and became very uh, and, and began this process of attacking Polish democratic institutions, much as Trump does in the United States. So if you think about attacking the media, attacking the courts, attacking the political system itself, that's what they wound up doing. We were in a funny position here because we knew some of them because some of them had made this journey from the center to the far right. And that's something I've written about before. And when they took power, they immediately set about trying to undermine the state. So they immediately began to take over all the institutions. One of the things they took over, for example, the security services, the prosecution office. And one of the things they do is financial investigations of people, which are essentially a form of harassment. You know, they will, you know, if you're somebody who bothers them. Like an audit, right? Like an audit or worse, you know, a bit nastier than that. They actually have the ability here to come and arrest you and put you in jail before you're indicted. Jesus. It's happened to some business people who got in their way or who they who they didn't like. It happened to a, a colleague of my husband's who was a lawyer who had uncovered a really big corruption scandal to do with the ruling party and its leader. It's pretty scary. And these are things that are supposed to be for, you know, terrorism or organized crime or something like that. And they they began to, you know, they, they exist in the in the system as a, a kind of emergency thing to deal with, especially dangerous criminals. They began using it a little bit against their political enemies. And so and that became a thing that people were worried about. They used a form of spyware called Pegasus, which I'm sorry to say is Israeli, which again is sold to be used against terrorism and so on. You could put it on people's phones and then you can hear everything they say and they can use the phone as a recording device and so on. And that happened here too. And, you know, we had the phenomenon in Poland that is reminiscent of the olden days when Poland was a communist country that, you know, you would leave your phone in a different room when you would have a conversation that started wow. happening here. I wouldn't say that it was everywhere, you know, or that it was, I don't want to overplay it, but certainly if you were in politics, if you were someone who had a big public profile, you became very nervous about what the state could do to you. We hope that this election brings that to an end. But it's also kind of warning sign. I mean, when you have a party which is that unscrupulous taking power and when they have access to all these tools that modern states have, you know, investigations and wiretapping and so on. I mean, it's not like it's unknown in American history, but it's essentially what the Nixon administration was, right? You know, when you have access to all these tools, you know, they have a lot of ways to harass people. So pushing back against them and, um, and as I said, this really big turnout was an important sign that people don't want that. I should say my husband was not a candidate in this election, but he did campaign on behalf of the opposition. And he was in the parliament before. Yeah, he was in the parliament before. He was the foreign minister for seven years from 2000 yeah. to 2014. So he has a, you know, he's associated and the person who's just was the leader of the opposition, he's very closely associated with is Donald Tusk. 
Tusk was involved in the EU. Yes. So Donald, the current leader, was prime minister of Poland until 2014. He was appointed to a big European job. He was chairman of the European Council, which means he was he presided over this body of prime ministers that meets periodically, which is the real leadership of the EU. And he did that for several years. And then he made a kind of momentous decision to come back to Polish politics, which was for him a real gamble because he could have gone off and, you know, worked as a consultant or worked for a bank. He would, there were a lot of lucrative jobs he could have had. And he decided to come back partly because of this fear that the name of the ruling party was law and justice and the fear that this party would take over the state and make Poland essentially into an autocracy. And so he believed very much in fighting back against that. And he came back and he reorganized the party and he, you know, they ran a, a great election campaign. And as I said, a lot of it was focused on getting younger people to vote, getting women to vote. A lot of it also, they created these organizations to monitor elections. They got people to sign up and sort of work on behalf of democracy. I mean, a little bit of that happened in the U.S. in 2020 as well. Yeah, it sounds a lot like the Biden coming back because he felt that it was, you know. Yeah, there's some parallels. I mean, just a little younger than Biden. He's, I think he's but the feeling that the election is existential, that it's about the nature of the country, I think a lot of people did agree with that. And the ruling party did absolutely everything they could to twist the election and to do with funding and media, but also the way in which um, seats were proportioned. So, you know, it's basically easier to get elected in the countryside, which is where their base is in rural Poland. Like gerrymandering. It's not exactly gerrymandering, but it's like gerrymandering. So it's you would find men, much of it familiar. I mean, it's like the politics of Tennessee, frankly. How do you fix the system so that you don't lose? And they really did try to do that. But eventually they lost. And it was mostly thanks to this very large number of people who voted. Clearly, there's a lesson here for American politics. Yeah. I mean, it's not a precise lesson. Some of it is stuff we sort of know, but giving people something to do instead of everybody feeling hopeless, you know, the forces of darkness are coming. I can't do anything. Who am I? What does my one vote mean? You know, giving people a task saying you can organize, you can be an election observer, you can run, you know, that I I think was a was a really important element here. Also, the other thing that was really important was that the language of the opposition was a kind of civic patriotism, you know, against right wing nationalism. You know, we are Polish, all their big rallies, people waved the flag, everybody dressed in red and white, which are the Polish colors. Everyone talked about Polish history and Polish tradition and, you know, and we're part of it. You know, they tried to take this idea that, you know, only the real Poles are the, you know, the right is somehow the real nation. They tried to end that mythology. You know, we are modern, forward-looking Polish patriots who want our country to be great, but in a different way. There's some kind of lesson there, I think, for Americans. There are ideas, particularly, you know, it works even better in America in a way. You know, there are ideas that we can unify around as Americans to fight against this kind of American nationalist extremism. You know, I think that's the way to beat it. Give people something to join, give them something to do and give them, you know, a big, important, unifying national message. And that's the best way to fight the far right. The far right in America and also in Poland rode into favor because of a certain kind of frustration among the voting public and maybe also racism and xenophobia. Did this sort of solve that problem or was there just a sense like globalization is happening? I mean, did people get less racist in your mind? Was there a sea change there or did people just decide that the dark was too much for them. Here, the issues were never exactly economic. A lot of it was cultural. You know, there was sort of a part of Poland that felt left behind, not so much economically, but culturally. You know, the world that we grew up in, in which everybody went to church, is changing. And our young people are moving to the cities or they're moving to Paris or they're moving to London. And there, were, there was some sense of cultural loss that I think was, was actually real. And the far right kind of echoed that and amplified it and and then turned it into this often very racist language about immigration. You know, actually, Poland has no big immigration problem. There are basically, you know, there are a lot of Ukrainian refugees here and Belarusian refugees. And there's just a you know, smattering of people from outside Europe. And, and ironically, and that's a whole other story, this government, the far right government turns out to have let in quite a lot of them because they were selling visas. Oh, wow. Well, another thing that happens when you have a 
government that pushes back on the rule of law, undermines the judiciary and takes over the police is that you get corruption. Yeah, that'll do it. <laughs> that'll yes. do it. Um, and so there's there's always this link between autocratic populism and corruption. And that's been, you know, and we had that here as well. And here, I think it was the combination of, first of all, seeing that some of the hysteria around immigration wasn't real. It's not happening. It's not it's not a real thing. I think some of it was, you know, as I said, this creeping sense of them taking over everything. Some of it was the corruption scandals. Some of it was, I think, you know, they almost overdid their propaganda. You know, their mm. their language about that, you know, they basically described Tusk as, you know, he's just a German agent and, you know, my husband is a Russian agent and everybody's foreign. That, of course, is so in contrast with reality, whereas, you know, Tusk doesn't speak German, he speaks Polish. You know, he was prime minister here. Their extremist propaganda hit some reality measure at some point. I think it was part of that too. You know, so it was a combination of, you know, they went too far, they did too much, they became too corrupt, they weren't good managers, they screwed up a lot of, you know, projects and investments. Things aren't working very well here. The healthcare system is beginning to fall apart. You know, the whole series of, oh, education, you know, they wanted patriotic education. You can imagine what that was. Right. <laughs> I cannot and don't want to. You don't even want to know. And people whose kids were in school who came home complaining about stupid things they've been taught. I mean, it's a cumulative effect of a series of not very well thought out plans and projects that they did that failed that I think also helped. Although, you know, it's important or they still have a big base of support. I mean, third of the country still voted for them. So crazy. And they will still be there and they're still they're still running all the institutions and getting rid of them is going to take a long time. You know, it's going to be a big project. I mean, it's almost comparable. I mean, I don't want to overdo it. But it's almost comparable to when communism fell in Poland in 1989, you know, then there was a big project of reform. You know, how do you unpick that regime? And this isn't quite at that scale, but I mean, there's, you know, we have to somehow undo the illegal judges they appointed. You know, they tried to politicize the court system, you know, have to undo all kinds of things. It will take a long time. I mean, by the way, one of the interesting parallels for Americans is one of the things Trump has said he wants to do, and I think some of the people around him even have pretty concrete plans about it, is fire all the civil service and replace them with loyalists. Yeah, the Heritage Foundation put out a thing about that. The Heritage Foundation, which right. I used to think of as evil, but in a different, more traditional way. <laughs> right. Traditionally. Well, that happened here. And let me tell you, it was a real disaster. Think about it. You know, Do you want people measuring the pollution in your water who are actual experts in science, or do you want them to be someone's cousin? Don Jr. Or got the job because, you know, he's related to somebody. And we had like the wholesale replacement of the civil service right down to weird things like the forestry service, which is a, what does that have to do with politics? And various state institutions were taken over by the party, by the, by this, it's called the Law and Justice Party, as I said, and destroyed. Poland is a smaller place and there's maybe less damage you can do. Imagine that happening in the United States, what kinds of catastrophes there could be. I mean, you know, the people who are in charge of burying nuclear waste or the people who run, I don't know, funding for, you know, underfunded schools or there are all kinds of programs that are run by the federal government that if you destroyed them by destroying the civil service, you could do a lot of damage. Michael Lewis wrote a good book about that, actually, at the time of the first Trump administration. It was called The Fifth Risk. But we had that in Poland and there was, a, you know, and there was this series of, you know, calamities, you know, screw ups in one institution and in one area of life after the next. And it was it was going to get worse. Yeah, it's just incredible stuff. And Applebaum, I really appreciate you joining us. So interesting and so important. And also, you know, hopefully a model for what happens here. Let us pray. Yeah. Or what continues to happen here. <laughs> yes. Thank you. And now your moment of fuckery. Jesse Cannon. Molly Jung Fast, I think you want to talk about the man that we're all laughing at today, Jim Jordan. Listen, it turns out that math is not just a woke construct. You need votes to win as speaker. Jim Jordan is not convinced, and so he will again and again do votes until everybody goes home. When you listen to this tomorrow, very, 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 very likely, Jim Jordan will not be the Speaker of the House. That's it for this episode of Fast Politics. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to hear the best minds in politics make sense of all this chaos. If you enjoyed what you've heard, 
please send it to a friend and keep the conversation going. And again, thanks for listening. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleh Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers.